0: Hi, and welcome to Sustainability Explored. Every week, this podcast navigates a new topic through interviews with the most disruptive minds in sustainability, turning their experiences working behind the scenes into actionable advice you can apply in your life, no matter your background. My name is Anna. I'm an environmentalist, sustainability consultant, and the host of this show. Today, we don't have a very usual episode. It's going to be very different from what I actually recorded for the past year and a half, almost. Today I want to dedicate this episode to the environment exploitation in war and conflict zones. On this day, 19 years ago, so it was 5 of November 2001, the UN General Assembly during Kofi Annan's tenure as Secretary General declared 6 of November of each year as the International Day for Preventing the Exploitation of the Environment in War and Armed Conflict Zones. Of this observance, Secretary General Ban Ki-moon has since written, we must use all of the tools at our disposal from dialogue and meditation to prevent diplomacy to keep the unsustainable exploitation of natural resources from fueling and financing armed conflict and destabilizing the fragile foundations of peace. Though humanity has always counted its war casualties in terms of dead and wounded soldiers and civilians, destroyed cities and livelihoods, the environment has often remained the unpublicized victim of war. Water wells have been polluted, crops torched, forests cut down, soils poisoned, and animals killed to gain military advantage. Furthermore, the United Nations Environment Program, UNEP, has found that over the last 60 years, at least 40% of all internal conflicts have been linked to the exploitation of natural resources, whether high-value resources such as timber, diamonds, gold, and oil, or scarce resources such as fertile soil, land, and water. Conflicts involving natural resources have also been found to be twice as likely to relapse. The United Nations attaches great importance to ensuring that action on the environment is part of conflict prevention, peace building, and peacekeeping strategies, because there can be no durable and sustainable future if the natural resources are not sustainable and destroyed. On May 27, 2016, the United Nations Environment Assembly adopted a resolution which recognizes the role of healthy ecosystem and sustainably managed resources in reduction of the risks of armed conflict and reaffirmed its strong commitment to the full implementation of the Sustainable Development Goals listed in General Assembly Resolution 70-1, entitled Transforming Our World, the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development. Today with me, with us, we have an expert on the topic, an expert in the field, his name is Nikolai Denisov. He's a deputy head and co-founder of ZOE Network, an international NGO based in Geneva, Switzerland. For more than 30 years, he's working on the issues of environmental information, monitoring, international dialogue, analysis and solutions searching for environmental problems. He has initiated a number of studies on the state of environment in Eastern Europe, the Caucasus, and Central Asia, including a series of regional reviews under the United Nations and the OSCE, International Environment and Security Initiative. He has experience in in researching cross-cutting issues at the intersection of environment and security in Moldova, Ukraine, Georgia, Palestine, and Afghanistan. He's also an author of dozens of international reports and publications, including those of United Nations Environment Program and OSCE on the state of environment in eastern Ukraine. I'm very happy, privileged and excited to have Nikolai sharing his knowledge and his experience and his expertise with us at Sustainability Export. And in fact, it's a big pleasure to virtually meet him after I was introduced to him by our common friend, British environmental journalist, Alex Kirby, four years ago. So today I'm meeting Nikolai as well for the first time. I can't wait to start our interview. Before Nikolai joins us, you can use this moment to subscribe to this channel, to always be Up to date or even one step ahead sometimes with the sustainability news across the world nikolai thank you so much i'm very excited you're joining us today and i appreciate you taking the time to do so i have already introduced you a little bit in my intro but i always ask my guests about their background and how they found themselves where they are in their career so the question to you the first question is how did you find yourself on the edge of environment And security.
1: Okay, thank you very much. That was coincidental. I am a geographer by training with a specialization in environmental science and I started by working in the field of water resources, water quality, and then when I started to work internationally that was mostly environmental information. uh, Monitoring indicators, environmental assessments, reporting, etc. And then as Part of that stream of looking at the environmental situation, in particular in the post-Soviet countries, there came an idea in early 2000s, in fact, shortly after September 11, that there are issues on the interface between environment and conflict, environment and security, which... I kind of could benefit from a systematic analysis of, for example, where uh, the environment can lead to insecurity, can lead to conflicts, where conflicts can lead to environmental issues, how this all is connected. A so-called environment and security initiative was created. Uh, At that time, uh, we were working relatively closely with the United Nations, United Nations Environment Program, UNEP, and UNEP was one of the founders of this environment security initiative. And the geographic area was mostly, well, it was Europe or Pan-Europe from the Balkans to Central Asia, uh, this whole huge space. And then we were trying to look at, the, at these issues on the environment and security interface. And I was part of that um, enterprise, so I started to get interested in that. And then, okay, Ukraine was one of the countries that we were looking at, so it all uh, more or less started there in the early 2000s.
0: Right. How is assessment of environment and the environmental factors in the war and conflict zones is different from any other areas and zones? You basically do the same work, but what are the challenges? What can one expect if going there? And who can actually
1: get there? Well, it is the same, and it isn't. Uh, first of all, we did not at that time we did not only deal with the kind of burning cases. Uh, we're not only the, the active conflict. In fact, there are not so many active conflicts. It was the whole, it was the whole connection, also in peacetime. And then we also looked at the preventive side, like how you can track the possible deterioration of the situation where there is no conflict at all. And in that respect, it's not that different from a normal environmental assessment. You're right. I mean, you look at the same issues. You look at water, you look at uh, waste, biodiversity, uh, pollution. Uh, the difference is you try to uh, to see how this can be connected to relations between uh, countries, between peoples, between parts of the same country, between social groups, etc. And so it's more than uh, environmental science. It's also you can say it's, it is also a little bit of a social research, of political research, etc. In, in that respect, it also means we have to talk to different kinds of kinds of people, different kinds of groups because when you do environmental research, well, sometimes you don't have to talk to anyone. You can talk to animals, you can just uh, contemplate looking at the river. In this case, you have to talk to the governments, have to talk to non-government actors. Uh, you have to talk to all sorts of uh, different kinds of agencies and players and groups to understand their perspectives. Uh, one thing we were saying when doing this work, its a little, it's very much the question of perception. I mean, security, is a, a notion of perception. That's how people see themselves and their contact their situation. If they feel threatened, it almost doesn't matter where, uh, whether there is an objective reason for that or not. So you have to deal with it. Uh, the difference is if there is an objective reason, you have to deal with the objective reason. But if it's only perception, you have to deal with people. You have to somehow help them see it in a different way. So um, it's much more complex in that respect.
0: Let's take a situation where the conflict has already unfolded and Mm -hmm. you're looking into either active conflict zone or post-conflict zone. How do you get there as a scientist, as an environmentalist? Do you have to be part of an organization that kind of gives you a status of an unengaged, disengaged, neutral party? Or is there any other way? I mean, I'm looking at the... Uh, Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, OSCE, or United Nations? This is as far as my thought goes. Is there anything I don't see?
1: Yeah, no, I think it's exactly well, there are different ways uh, but the, the way you describe is one of them and that's Probably the most uh, natural is to work together with the intergovernmental organizations who have the right mandate to be in the area. I can give you well some examples. Um, for example, quite a long time ago, well, it wasn't me personally, but our organization took part in the assessment of the grass fires in Nagorno-Karabakh. And that was the call of the government of Azerbaijan, who appealed to the United Nations, to the General Assembly. And then uh, the General Assembly mandated at that time the OEC to undertake session assessments. So we went together uh, as part of the expert team. Uh, when uh, we worked in the Dnister river basin uh, between Ukraine and Moldova, we do, but there was a time uh, when we were trying to deal with some of the environmental issues in Transnistria on the other side of the new state. It's a breakaway area uh, of Moldova. It does not subordinate, de facto does not subordinate to Moldova central government. So to talk to the de facto authorities, uh, of course, you need some kind of access and some kind of credentials. So at that time, we worked with the OEC office in Kishinev, which had a liaison office in Tiraspol, which uh, had connections to the de facto authorities. And then Kishinev uh, was also following the developments, so there was full connection on both sides. And then again, we were working with, at that time with the OEC mission uh, in expert capacity, trying to look at the environmental issues. For example, uh, how to get rid of the stocks of obsolete pesticides, which were uh, stockpiled there and then the de facto authorities didn't really know how to get rid of them. So that was kind of facilitated through through that process. Uh, So in most cases, the easiest is to go together with the intergovernmental organizations who are recognized by the parties to the conflicts and who have an interest in the in this dimension, this area, and then also have access uh, to this kind of situation.
0: Mm -hmm. The United Nations, in one of their reports, said that in the past 60 years, almost like over 40% of resources have been destroyed because of the internal conflict. Have you, in your experience, witnessed the war or armed conflict unfolding primarily because of the resource?
1: Uh, it's a long discussion to, how, to what extent resources or environmental conditions can actually lead to hostilities. I think the, the overall consensus, at least in the academic community, is that the environment or resources can be an additional trigger so they can uh, make the situation worse. But it's not very frequent, that they are the main cause of an armed conflict. This is relatively rare. Uh, for example, okay, there is a lot of talk about water wars. And then there are even predictions uh, that there will be more of that because the climate is getting drier, because the demand is getting strong on water resources. What we see in the reality is that very often these kind of difficulties rather lead to cooperation between the countries in the same river basin, for example. Even if they don't cooperate uh, over other things, sometimes they cooperate over water. So, uh, in fact, it's a very complex question which i don't think it has a single answer there are all sorts of situation there but overall it's not clear cut it's never black and white so environment the environment is a factor it can make things worse but it can also make things better because this can be one thing parties can talk about if they cannot talk about anything else
0: not so long ago, I issued a, an episode on mining, bauxite mining activities in Guinea. And there, with the guest, we asked ourselves is natural resource a, a blessing or a curse to a country? What's your take? What do you think?
1: Well, uh, there is a stream of research about the resource curse, that the abundance of resources can be dangerous for a country. It can actually lead to stagnation. It can also lead to abundance of resources, which can be invested in the conflicts. Um, it's well known that mining can be a source of fuel for armed groups. And Africa is definitely one of the places where it happens. Afghanistan is another place where it happens. Uh, which is um, known for this. So, yes, uh, abundance of resources uh, can be a curse, but it can also be a blessing. It's all in our hands, it depends on how we use the resources.
0: How strong the government is to protect its own lands. On a more individual scope, do you think civilians, regular people living in the occupied territories, do they have any power, any say? against the environmental exploitation in those regions?
1: Uh, it's a difficult question, I think it's context specific. It depends on what territories we're talking about, what regime or governance regime uh, is set up on these territories. I think it's basically the question, it's not the question whether areas are occupied or not, it's the question of how democratic the government there is. If it is democratic, which one could imagine theoretically, then of course the local population has a say if it 's not that they have not so it goes i think it's kind of outside the political the international political dimension it has much more to do with how the areas are managed in internal political terms
0: mm-hmm. well, it basically like could lead to my next question because i i really don't know how those gray zones are regulated in terms of legal aspects and whether there is so imagine you're living in that gray zone not yet a part of another country without knowing whether this part where you live in will ever become recognized think kosovo when Mm. they detached from serbia they were not anymore serbia but not yet independent in some countries, some countries still did not recognize them as independent like spain because they also will have a precedent with that area where barcelona is (laughs) so what kind of regulations can exist in those gray zones will the people really depend on the newly established semi-government sometimes or like eastern ukraine as well and we don't have any visibility over what's going on there in terms of environment.
1: Yeah. I think, again, it's the question of uh, what kind of political regime is setting, setting in there. Kosovo is a good example, because when Kosovo broke away, uh, Serbia was uh, still relatively uh, authoritarian, and then Kosovo had European ambition. So at least, at least nominally, it was interested in setting up democratic institutions. And again, I'm not an expert on the uh, you know, domestic politics of Kosovo or any other area. I'm an environmentalist, but from what I can see in such situations, there is much hope that democratic institutions will facilitate democratic governance. So I would say this is a positive trend, which also helps uh, people take part in the managing their their territory and their resources if there are no such ambitions if there is no uh, progressive legislation if there are no progressive institutions and i'm talking about de facto legislation de facto institutions i'm not talking about the international credibility of these institutions but uh, any area has to be somehow managed so if institutions which are being set up are not progressive like i said before of course of course, uh, the chance that the governments will be progressive is also not not very big. I think in uh, the case of Spain, uh, the P de Basque uh, is governed by the Spanish law, and uh, okay, we can discuss uh, whether what happened to Catalonia was progressive or less so. But at least Spanish law is definitely law of European democratic countries. So I have no doubt that uh, there are ample opportunities there to also take care of the resources. Of course, it clashes in some cases um, with competing interests, let's say local authority, central authority. That's clear. That's what also seen in Catalonia. But again, uh, I think the potential there is much higher than in other places where uh, there is no such a thing.
0: Mm -hmm. You know, when I was preparing for this episode and researching a lot and watching movies, I realized that it's almost impossible to talk about this topic outside, like completely detached from the political aspect of it. When you're doing the environmental assessments in, in such areas, how far you can go without political kind of engagement or the protection of the intergovernmental bodies like UN and OSCE kind of already puts you in the neutral position?
1: Uh, they do. and um, That's indeed the case with the UN, even more so with the OSCE, which is a consensus-based organization. Uh, we are based in Switzerland. Switzerland is also uh, known as a neutral country. So we try to be objective, to put it that way. Which means we try to listen to different sources of information, to different sources of opinion. Again, perceptions matter. We try to also look at at perceptions and try to see what the common denominator is. Uh, Which doesn't mean that sometimes the common denominator is not on the sides of one of the parties. Because it can be that one of the parties is more right. Than the other, but we basically were we're trying to see as much as we can what the situation is objectively. Of course, one of the problems, especially in conflict areas, is that the data are usually uh, not very. Uh, good and not very abundant uh, so there is lack of information that complicates things so again i uh, have to make decisions uh, what to trust what to discard where to put the safety safety border uh, what to say to be on a safe side what to keep to yourself uh, so there are of course compromises of this kind but again i think the important elements probably are wanting to find out what is really happening on the one hand and being able to listen, be open to, to views, to opinions, and then uh, take it from there.
0: I just had this question, What? how do you know, how can you influence as a scientist, as an environmentalist, after your environmental assessment is done, how do you communicate the results to the other party, say the one that has unfolded the aggression against the other, and how to make sure they actually implement your purely environmental findings in order, in order to, to make the situation better?
1: Uh, well, we're not an activist organization. So we, um, we communicate, uh, but we don't uh, usually have influencing agenda. So our agenda is whatever we'll find out if we believe in the credibility of the findings, we want uh, to make them known. Uh, broadly known, which means we communicate through whatever channels uh, we have, but we're not necessarily being selective, so we're not trying to target any particular actor, any particular party. Uh, We basically believe in public domain and make information available uh, as much accessible as possible, understandable. We put a lot of energy emphasis into converting complex things into something which can be understood by uh, people who are not necessarily experts which means a relatively accessible language, which means a lot of emphasis on visual information, work a lot of visual information and data, which means languages. So we always try to make things available in various languages when they have opportunity. And uh, we also rely on our international partners, intergovernmental uh, partners. So it is the UN or the OCE or a similar institution. Then they also have their communication tools and channels and agendas. So we try to feed those as much as we can.
0: Six of November every year is an international day of preventing of environmental exploitation in war and armed conflict zones. How to prevent?
1: Again, not only the question, because uh, usually the environment, it's, it's a usual casualty of uh, any armed uh, situation, any armed conflict, uh, which is almost understandable. I mean, in these situations, people uh, very seldom think about environmental protection. For them, environment is uh, either a resource or a hindrance or something, but it's definitely not something they're concerned about. So, well, one thing is uh, awareness, uh, which of course a kind of soft response, maybe also a weak response, but sometimes it's uh, the best we can do. Just simply to remind everybody engaged, everybody involved, that it doesn't that wars come and go, environmental stays and people live there before We live there after and people live there during and and environmental services are needed all the time and it's very costly to uh, restore them, it's much better to to protect them and it's also an ethical imperative if you want. So we can talk about this a lot uh, which will help a little bit we not have much, but at least if we continue, that somebody will notice, somebody will listen and on the end of the day it may have an impact. Then uh, there is, of course, the legal dimension. There are legal instruments, international conventions, which have to do with how parties behave during a war, during armed conflict. And then um, there's not much there about the environment yet, but this can be introduced. And uh, this is a large field of work which other organizations are working. The Red Cross, International Federation Red Cross is working on the uh, principles of environmental protection during armed action, the International Law Commission. So there are organizations who are looking into that. And again, uh, like awareness, uh, the international law has its limitations, but it works with a different dimension things and again it has its ways to influence uh, reality so again this is one way uh, to do that and then of course working with all these uh, organizations, all these institutions, all these people, I and mean, not just talking, not just creating legal norms, but actually working with them, working with the military, if you like, working with the civilian administrations, working with the people uh, when there is no war, so that if something happens, at least somebody knows about this dimension, creating institutions for dealing with that. For example, strengthening environmental protection, responsibility of the armed force. So those sort of things are important.
0: Right. So communication, education, and culture, it always breaks down to these three mostly, and legislation if possible. Uh, Yes.
1: Uh, A buzzword, capacity building, I mean, it means nothing and everything. It means uh, making people understand the importance and making people able to act if they really want to act. So building their capacity. And I think that's also quite important.
0: Right. While preparing for this episode, I also asked my audience and listeners if they would be curious to ask something to the expert. And I received two questions. If you are okay with that, I will ask you. Uh, I I
1: cannot promise, but I can try.
0: (laughs) Well, it sounds easy, but usually people ask easy questions that only look easy on the surface, but very deep. So Claudio Popescu asks, what is the main cause of environmental exploitation in such areas? He says, I imagine it's poverty and lack of laws and corruption. What do you think?
1: Well, that's definitely one of the roots, uh, one of the causes of environmental overexploitation, in particular. Because, of course, when people don't have the livelihoods, um, but they still have to somehow leave, uh, then they use whatever they have, and then what they have with the environment. So of course they try to make use of it, and it 's difficult to blame them for that. Another problem, uh, well, um, there are, of course, also direct impacts of hostilities. And when there is a war, then uh, factories burn and forests burn, and, and there is chemical pollution. Uh, sometimes there is depleted uranium. There are all sorts of things which affect the environment directly. But then also is the whole degradation of institutions, of in particular environmental protection institutions. Like all the civil administration functions of the areas, usually suffer a lot. And environmental protection is not the strongest uh, function in peacetime, it usually loses, it often loses compared to stronger interests, economic interests, uh, other interests, uh, and in wartime it's in a very, very difficult position. So it's very easy to uh, degrade, to destroy this fragile part of civil administration. And then it's impossible it's impossible to take care of forests or protected areas it's difficult to operate wastewater treatment. Um, monitoring usually goes down. so there are many many things which are linked to a regular everyday environmental protection which um, have difficulties uh, functioning uh, in a war zone and even in the area of frozen conflict where simple administration is weak compared to normal stations.
0: Right. You mentioned depleted uranium, and I read about it a couple of years ago in the context of Kosovo. Mm. What do you think? Who is the party to take care of cleaning up the territories, chemical leakages, nuclear (coughs) remains, under any international treaty, or here I'm completely blocked, Who, who must take responsibility?
1: Yeah, well, compensation is a very, very difficult question. And again, I'm not a lawyer, so I cannot answer this question uh, properly. I can only express my my opinion, I think, uh, in the environmental fields, uh, there is a well-known principle the polluter pays. So in principle, whoever pollutes should pay. Uh, We have the same approach to climate change now. So whoever is responsible for greenhouse gas emissions somehow should try to find the ways to deal with it and maybe compensate countries who uh, have to adapt, although it's a very, very difficult politicized discussion in the Paris Agreement. So it's not easy to bring this up. So on the ethical level, I would say it's always the polluter who is responsible. In reality, it's all the question of negotiations and compromise and goodwill. And I think uh, from case to case, the situation differs.
0: Right. Okay. Second question from Claudio. Are there any unused opportunities for people in those areas to make a better living so they don't need to sell their land for exploitation?
1: Uh, Well, again, I think this would depend on the concrete situation. And in all the areas of active conflicts, frozen conflicts, past conflicts, uh, things are different. And so I think that would define the correct answer. If I look, for example, at Afghanistan, where the conflict is still around, there is income to be made from poppy cultivation. And uh, Afghanistan is one of the uh, probably the biggest poppy producer uh, worldwide. And uh, of course, it's understandable that people would rather do that. Now, it's possible to encourage them to do other things. Uh, Many international organizations, many donors in Afghanistan are trying to do that, are trying to convince people to convert poppy production to something less dangerous for the humanity. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. It depends on how much resources can be brought from the outside in order to facilitate this transition. Uh, It depends on many things from soil and climate to where Taliban exactly is at this particular moment and what they encourage as opposed to international organizations. So yes, it is possible, but it is not easy. It is expensive and it's also very fragile. And I think it needs a lot of support.
0: Yes, well, I think, Nikolai, we have played our part today in communication and education on the topic. To wrap it up, one last question I usually ask my guests. Could you provide one piece of advice for the listeners of Sustainability Export, with the angle on the topic that we have just discussed?
1: Uh, well, uh, since, since we're discussing the conflict versus environments, uh, I would say this is an area which still doesn't have enough attention, doesn't have enough exposure. Uh, environmental issues, uh, uh, luckily or unluckily, are known and acknowledged enough. Climate change is everywhere. People know that. But the uh, conflict dimension of environmental degradation, I think, still could use a bit more attention because that way eventually we could maybe uh, also uh, improve the situation, diminish the environmental impacts in conflict areas. And again, we should remember that when the conflict already is burning, uh, nobody would listen to those things. So we really need to talk about them before uh, in advance, before ahead. Because that way, somebody will at least remember that this things matter. So I would say bringing it up and bringing people up for understanding this, bringing children up understanding this is extremely important. So I would say, I would appreciate if our listeners would try to learn more about this particular connection and maybe spread the words and maybe see if they can also contribute to building this knowledge, building this understanding worldwide.
0: Brilliant words. Thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed our conversation and I really hope my listeners, our listeners will follow your lead, your example and your advice. Thank you very much. And all the best in your tough and so important work.
1: Thank you so much, Anna. It was my pleasure as well.
0: Thank you very much for being with us today, for listening to this episode, the unusual episode that we have dedicated to the International Day of Prevention, of Exploitation of Environment in War and Armed Conflict Zones. As always, if you have any questions to me or Nikolai, please don't hesitate to reach out on LinkedIn. If you like the podcast, you know what to do. Subscribe, share on your social media, and leave a review on the platform you're listening on. If you leave a review on our Podchaser page, I will reply to you in person, as I always do. I uh, used to suggest some other related episodes, but today there is nothing I can suggest to you in terms of what we have already in recorded for Sustainability Explored. Instead, I would suggest you watch movies such as Scared Lands and Wounded Lives, The Environmental Footprint of War and The Age of Consequences. So these are my two suggestions. Go through the reports of OSCE, Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. United Nations Development Programme, Environment Programme also has some very good resources to, to read, to go through, to educate yourself on. Finally, reach out to me on LinkedIn, challenge me with your questions, suggest topics, suggest guests, topics you'd like me to cover in the future. You will find this interview on our 76 audio platforms, podcast platforms, as well as on YouTube. We also have a Facebook group, uh, a LinkedIn page where we can all engage and exchange ideas. So join in. This was Sustainability Explored, episode number 60, season 5, and me, your host, Anna cheshna Thank you again for listening, for being with us today and always, and until next time, next Thursday, take care, stay sustainable. Bye-bye.